he very willfully bucked this trend and informed uh, and informed shareholders. I mean, literally made it explicit. If you are looking for short-term profits, don't come here. You will be disappointed. We are reinvesting in the business. And he was one of the very few leaders that had, frankly, the courage to do it. I mean, for a long time, Amazon was punished for that behavior. Uh, certainly, that has not been the case of late. Uh, but it, it really did require people to have the same philosophy. And mostly that's not the case. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Welcome to Connected Leadership Gold. I'm Andy Lapata. We're taking a break from the regular programming for August and we're going to share with you some of the jewels from the Connected Leadership Podcast archive. There have been so many great guests over the last two or three years that we want to make sure you don't miss out. So enjoy this jewel from the archive and I'll be back again on the 4th of September. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. It's nearly a year since I launched the podcast. And so around a year ago, I was in planning phases and I was working out what I wanted the podcast to stand for and the type of guests I wanted to attract. And today's guest was one of the first names I put on that list. So it's taken a while to get her to join me. Um, but I believe having conducted this interview now that it's well worth the wait and I, I certainly hope that you agree as you listen to it. Uh, my guest was named as one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by the very highly respected Thinkers 50. She was named the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Award. She's a professor at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School and she's the author of several books including one that's just about to come out. Uh, and on top of all of that, she was a presidential uh, campaign communications director back in uh, the early 2000s and is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. So maybe now you know why I wanted her on this show so much. The timing is perfect, though, because her new book, which comes out next month, uh, is The Long Game, subtitled How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And it, it's... It's really a prime topic for me. So many of the people that I mentor have the challenge that they have to overcome of the understanding of the need to build long-term relationships, but pressure to get short-term results. And one of the biggest struggles they have is managing that balance. And indeed, if I think back to when I uh, was in corporate life, I left primarily because the decisions on the contract I ran in the east of England were being dictated by quarterly results on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and the two were just not connected. And yet I couldn't progress the way I wanted to on my contract because of that short term thinking. And for me, that was the end of my corporate life. So I wanted to focus that on my theme today, balancing long term relationship building with short term targets and imperatives. And Dory Clark is my guest, and she was the perfect person to ask about this. So I started out by asking Dory, how did we get into this position in the first place where we put short-termism up front? Well, part of it, of course, unfortunately, is just human nature. 
that uh, something now is more appealing than something later because uh, it's it, you know it's, it's kind of like the, the famous uh, Walter Michel uh, marshmallow test, right? Uh, one of the things that they discovered about you know, and people are probably familiar with this famous sociological study uh, and, and psychology study that uh, you offer kids marshmallows. You say you can have one right now or you can you can have two yeah. if you wait 15 minutes. And of course, the, the quote unquote right answer in order to maximize your marshmallow deliciousness is to wait 15 minutes. What they discovered is that while it is true that in some cases it's a matter of personality, some people are more patient, some people are more impetuous, one of the, uh, the things that they also discovered is that if the kids came from a background where promises were not reliable, then very logically they took the marshmallow now because they said, you know what? These people could just be lying to me. <laughs> so I might as well take the marshmallow now. And uh, we certainly live uh, in a world where when a lot of things are changing, when a lot of things are, are up in the air and feel very uncertain, uh, sometimes people want to want to grab the marshmallow or grab uh, whatever their equivalent of it is. And it, it's unfortunate because we all know that you can get better, more lasting, more meaningful results if you wait, if you're patient. But it's a constant pull uh, between, you know, human nature of wanting it now and also being a little unsure sometimes about whether your calculation will actually pay off. So, I mean, I, I wanted to explore and I do want to explore how much of this comes into corporate and organizational culture and is driven by that and how much it's just us as individuals anyway. So let's start from from the latter perspective. You've got a high profile. You know, a lot of people want to be connected to you and engage with you for any number of reasons. Do you notice a difference between people who connect with you with a long term view or people who just want a piece of you straight away and they've got an ulterior motive? And how much does the latter stand out? Yeah, it's it's a useful question, and uh, it's something that I definitely talk about. I have a whole chapter about it in my book, The Long Game. I can't even tell you, Andy, and I'm sure you've probably experienced this as well. How many people uh, who you know maybe I've met them in person, and then they follow up with a LinkedIn invitation? Maybe sometimes I haven't even. They just you know friend friend me on a social network, and then the the minute I accept, uh, they follow up with a message saying, "Oh, hey, I see you're connected to so and so. Can you introduce me to so and so?" And of course, you know, so and so is some high profile person that, of course, lots of people uh, want to or try to get introduced to. And, you know, that's, that's something that really doesn't go well. Um, so, you know, one of the interesting questions to, you know, to the pl point where you started this out, you were talking about sales. And of course, the sort of easy mantra is, you know, well, it doesn't hurt to ask. And one of the points that I really want to make in the long game is actually sometimes it does. Sometimes it legit hurts to ask. And you need to wait. Because if you transmit to the person that you've just met that you don't really care about them, you, you view the relationship as completely instrumental, they are not going to be very helpful to you. And in fact, it's probably going to tarnish your reputation to the point that anytime somebody mentions your name, they're going to be like, oh, that guy, uh, which really does not bode well for your future success. Uh, so, so yeah, I one of the points that I actually make in the long game 
is I have created a rule for myself that I, I you know, I would venture to, to say is perhaps not a bad rule for other people to follow as well. And I call it no asks for a year. And I'm not talking if you're a professional salesperson, that's literally your job. But if you are building a relationship with, with someone, you know, colleague, a friend, um, I think that it is actually a good policy to not ask anybody for for any sort of meaningful ask, you know, an ask that involves political capital for at least a year, because it, number one, prevents you from forming any agenda. And number two, it prevents them from inferring that you have an agenda. I think that, that that's great advice. I want to explore that a, a little bit more deeply. First of all, hello to Susie Parker, who's, who's watching on LinkedIn, uh, and has said, um, social climbing is a great way to lose friends and influence. Uh, and I think that's absolutely spot on. And, and this goes back to um, what I was saying about if you ask too soon in a relationship, you damage the relationship. But if you ask later, you can actually strengthen it. Uh, it's what I, I have a graph I call the impact point graph uh, that, that, that illustrates this. Um, I'm going to throw a little uh, nuance in that direction, if you like, because I think that's a great general rule. And, and what springs to mind as you share that is, is Stephen Covey's emotional bank accounts, that you invest in the bank account, you invest in the relationship before you seek to withdraw. You meet some people who are clearly in a space where they're engaged by what you do, they're enthused by what you do, and they want to help you almost as soon as they meet you. And, and, and I can name people that I've had that relationship with. Um, and actually holding back too much um, would almost be an insult to them. Not quite that degree, but, but along those lines. Do you have that one year rule um, with, with everyone? Or how much do you allow for reading personality? And how do you read that? What are the signs you look for? Yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction. And, you know, the point that you're making, Andy, is, you know, what what if someone is essentially coming to you? What if they, you know, what if they want to be helpful? And of course, that's a that's a different scenario, right? Like, if we're at a dinner party, and, uh, and you say to me, so Dory, let me tell you about that time I won the Nobel Prize. I'll be like, oh my God, this guy, like, he, you know, clearly he won a Nobel Prize once and now he can't shut up about it. What a jerk. It is very different if we're at a dinner party and I say to you, Andy, tell me about winning the Nobel Prize. Oh my God, what was that like? Tell me everything. Well, that, that's been invited. You're not a jerk for telling me. You'd be a jerk for refusing to tell me. So if, if the invitation has been issued, then by all means, it's really just a question of, you know, what are, what are you shoving down people's throats? That's the, the dynamic that we want to avoid. So I always keep my Nobel Prize winning story for at least two years. Um, but, then, <laughs> but then I talk about both of them. Uh, <laughs> so just following that thread a little bit further, do you still think that there is something to be said for even if someone says, how can I help you? I'd like to help you. Still saying thank you, but let's see how things go. Because I do think that there's a, a bit of a culture I've spotted, particularly in networking circles, the formal networking circles, where there are people who who overteach, seek to help other people before you um, seek help for yourself, which is a good lesson in itself, but ends up with people interpreting it as instead of saying, what do you do? They say, how can I help you before they've even met you? Um, so do you think there are times to say, well, actually, thank you for that. Let's get to know each other first. 
<laughs> yes, and you're you're calling out a, a good example. I mean, I think mm. sometimes in professional circles, there's there's sort of vogues that that uh, take hold, and one of the vogues where people just kind of take a good idea and and almost run too far with it is the idea of being of help, being of value, adding value. Like, of course you want to do that. Like, why would you not? That's a wonderful thing. But they interpret that to mean that like all you do is ask, ask, you know, oh, how can I help? And one of the points that I have made in, you know, various articles over, over the year, and so thank you for giving me the uh, opportunity to beat my drum a little bit, is... If you say, how can I help in, in a sort of general, not very targeted or thoughtful way, that's actually really annoying because first of all, um, if it's said too soon, it really does feel like a platitude. It's like, well, you know, do you even actually mean that? And then number two, it, it often can feel like homework to the other person because they have no context about you. They have no idea. And so it's essentially making them do the detective work of, oh my gosh, okay, well, who is Andy and how can he help me? Uh, I don't know. Let me, let me spend like an hour figuring that out. Like that's annoying too. And it's, it's much easier to just decline it at that point rather than, you know, go chase down the rabbit hole of doing it. So uh, a point that, that I've made uh, in some Harvard Business Review articles is that you should arrive with a hypothesis of how you can help. Like if you actually want to be helpful rather than just being performatively helpful, it is useful to just investigate enough. Now the person of course can say no, but uh, if you arrive with a hypothesis, you know, you might for instance say, hmm, well Dory has a new book. I bet she probably wants to uh, promote it somehow. So I could say, Dory, uh, hey, I'd really like to help with your with your new book. Um, would it be useful to you if I wrote a review on Amazon? And then I could say, oh, that sounds like a great idea, Andy. Thank you. As compared to you know the sort of general, you know, hmm, I don't know how you know what what's, uh, what would it look like. So specificity and having a hypothesis, which then people can either assent to or redirect, I think is probably a, a more legitimate way to actually be helpful. Do you, uh, do you agree with that or how do you think about it? I, I do agree. And what I love about it is that I talk about being specific and actually a phrase that I picked up years ago, being bizarrely specific in terms of referral requests. Um, you know, one of the phrases that I use a lot is anyone will get you no one. Uh, and the classic referral request is if you know anyone who needs my services. Uh, and and the, the, the visual metaphor I use is of a painting. You need to paint an image of a portrait uh, of an individual someone knows in, in their mind's eye. Then they'll refer you to them. If you paint a crowd scene with lots of blurred faces, then they've nowhere to go. I've never thought about it the other way around in terms of offering help and actually saying, you know, I've done it today. I've said to someone, if you'd like help with your book, let me know. Now, actually, I could have said, and with this person, I would only do it if it was a fit. Would you like to come on my podcast to talk about the book when it comes out? Uh, and that's very defined help. And that's an easy yes or no. Um, and, you you know, I always talk about making the other person do all of the work. You should be doing the work for them. So I think it's a really good distinction uh, and and absolutely spot on and it takes exactly what I teach one way but uses it the other and both are just as valuable 
if we if we look at Stephen Covey's emotional bank accounts, there are two sides to that. Covey talks about the deposit, but there's also the withdrawal element. You know, you need to be able to ask for something from your network as well. And I think everything has that yin and yang, the, the two sides of the coin. And, and we can easily take advice that we give or take in one um, sense and, and use it in, in, in the opposite context. So that's that's great. So that that that's that's taking the individual element of of the playing the short game and the long game uh and very much what you're saying is exactly what i've just outlined is it whether you are looking to uh get from a relationship or whether you're looking to give to a relationship it's the same thing if you rush in too quickly um then uh, and and also without much thought i think would come into this uh then it's going to have a negative impact on the relationship i guess it's a lot like dating <laughs> in some senses there what about organizations because my take from working with a lot of my clients is that individuals do seem to understand what i'm talking about but they feel hamstrung by the demands of the organization can we change organizational attitudes easily or is it more ingrained well it's it's certainly a challenge because it, it, it changing your own mind is uh it can be very challenging but also it doesn't have to be it can it can be literally flipping the switch sometimes but we we have control over how hard of a process it is changing an organization you know i mean if you are the leader of the organization it actually can be flipping the switch but in most cases we have to persuade a lot of people and so that is a process where we have to do some strategizing and if you are the low man on the totem pole uh switching to long-term thinking may come across as oh well she just doesn't really want to do the work. <laughs> Yo, well, she just can't really meet her quota. So that's why she wants to do that, which, which of course is uh, reputationally not where you want to go. And so it's, uh, it's a balancing act to be able to, uh, to make your case that no, this is not about getting out of work. No, this is not about you can't hack it uh, the correct way. Uh, it is instead about putting forward a, a better way, a better orientation for everyone. And so that involves a, a bit of political savvy in order to be able to, to do that. Uh, so it's, it's not an easy process, but I think certainly it is a valuable process because you know, ultimately, we all know as customers, we all know on the receiving end that nobody likes to be bullied, nobody likes to be pressured, nobody likes to uh, to feel like they're somehow being put under the gun. And yet so often that is what we uh, subject others to if we are in a corporation where uh, where that is the mentality of how how deals are done. So would you change target driven environments um, and, and or would you include a mix of short term and long term targets? Well, I think that the the main issue, if you have a highly motivated and highly self motivated group of people, then long-term targets are fine. They're perfectly sufficient because you are going to you're going to get the results regardless. Um, not everybody's like that, however, and so I don't want to craft a universal prescription for organizations. Uh, I think uh, they know better 
what their staff is like, what their capabilities are are like, and you know what previous incentives have uh, ha- have sort of led to in terms of who has gotten hired. Uh, if you have a bunch of people that are really dri- legitimately driven by short term incentives, and all of a sudden you say, "Oh, you know, we're completely changing the game here. Uh, it's going to be different." Well, that's probably not going to go well because it's it's a different type of person and it's a different type of mentality. They're probably, frankly, going to feel uh, offended or they're going to feel like the the game has been changed to their disadvantage midstream. Uh, so we have to be thoughtful about that. But I will tell you personally, um, you know, I as, as a as a solopreneur, you know, I run my business. I have some part time help but it's it's really me and therefore i have the ability to you know set the targets and figure all that out i exclusively focus on on long term because i can and i find that to be very successful i am someone who tries to actively turn away clients uh if if i if i even get the faintest whiff that they are the not the right person for me I will I will easily uh, turn away you know tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of business per year because if I if I get the sense that someone is looking for the wrong thing if they're coming at it from the wrong perspective uh, in terms of of what I can do for them or in terms frankly of timeline because the the work that I do um, for instance my executive coaching work helping uh, helping people, you know, thought leaders build their platforms, that is a slow process. You know, even in the best of circumstances, it is not a fast process. And if someone is looking for fast results, I know they're going to be disappointed. I know they're going to end up angry at me. I don't want that. I don't need that. I literally don't need their money. And so I will push that as far away as possible uh, because what I want is a, a slower burn. I want people that see the world the way that I do and are happy to do the work and perhaps to have slower, you know, to, to understand that results can be slow. Um, but if we're working the process, we are doing it the right way rather than trying to jackhammer something in and, and then getting an unfortunate blowback. I, I definitely get that. I remember years ago when I first effectively sacked a client because they just weren't aligned to my values. And I had, it was right at the start of, of this business. And I needed revenue. I needed clients, um, but I didn't enjoy the work. I didn't enjoy the the, the engagement. Uh, and the first chance I got, I I, I, f- I found my way a way to extricate myself. Um, and and I find that very satisfying to not to be in that position to have to do that, um, but to 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 value yourself enough to do that. That's easier for us because we run smaller businesses and we're at the centre of them. Uh, have you seen? larger organizations who do this effectively uh, and and what is it you've seen about them uh, in the way that they operate well i think you know one one characteristic oftentimes is that <laughs> that they are not publicly traded <laughs> because it's uh it, it's very hard i mean a lot of people hold up Jeff Bezos, and I think he actually is a great example of one of the very, very few leaders of a publicly traded company. I guess technically he's no longer the CEO, but for many years, of course, he was, um, where he very willfully bucked this trend and informed 
uh, and informed shareholders. I mean, literally made it explicit. If you are looking for short-term profits, don't come here. You will be disappointed. We are reinvesting in the business. And he was one of the very few leaders that had frankly, the courage to do it. I mean, for a long time, Amazon was punished for that behavior. Uh, certainly, that has not been the case of late. Uh, but it it really did require people to have the same philosophy. And mostly, that's not the case. So where we often see it is things like family businesses, uh, you know, th things that have been passed from generation to generation, because the time frame is different. In my new book, The Long Game, I actually start out uh, by sharing a story from my friend Martin Lindstrom, who's a, a well-known branding expert and author. And one, one of his sidelines is he actually is an advisor, a branding advisor to a royal family. And he said that when he first started his engagement, the leader of the royal family came up to him and said, Martin, uh, I want you to know we can't have you thinking short term around here. And Martin said, okay, well, I'm, I'm on board. You know, what do you mean by that? And the leader said, what we mean is five years and 10 years, like nobody cares about that. What success means is that this generation will have succeeded. If that happens, then you will have done your job. And I, I think for a lot of family firms, that's how they view it. Uh, it's very rare, of course, in, uh, in a public company for that to be the case. Yes, I was going to talk about um, publicly traded organisations because you talked about it's very easy if you're the big boss. But of course, if you're the big boss, but you're publicly traded, you've then got your shareholders to answer to and they tend to be much more short term focused. Using the example of Amazon, you said Amazon got published, uh, uh, punished early uh, for uh, taking a long term view. Uh, and I guess the answer lies somewhere within that story or within that example um, that you have to know if you take a longer term view that your short term results are going to be below expectations and you have to be able to factor that in and you've got to be able to ride that. And that works whether you're at the top of a publicly traded body and, and you're looking at how you're going to um, ride out the, the, the company's AGM for the next three years or whether you're a sales rep who's going to miss two or three targets. But next year, if you can hang on to your job that long, you're going to outperform everyone else. That's right. And narrative becomes essential here because if you leave the narrative interpretation up to other people, they're going to just say, well, he sucks. <laughs> like, look at, look at all the red ink. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And that's the logical interpretation if you don't provide another interpretation. But if you actually do the work like Jeff Bezos did in a very masterful way, frankly, of saying, no, this is the plan. This is, this is you know, not a bug. This is a feature. This is literally what we are trying to do here. And you are repeated and adamant about it. Uh, that, that becomes very powerful. Uh, one of the things that I quote in the long game is there was an interview that Jeff Bezos did 10 years ago, back in 2011, with Wired Magazine. And he said that one of the secrets of his success was he said, most companies think on about a, a three-year timeline. He said, we don't. We, we try to double that. We think at Amazon on a, at least a seven-year timeline. And the difference is enormous because the things you can accomplish in seven years are actually really substantial. And most other companies are not even trying. They're not even playing in that space because they feel like they can't afford to think that long term. But that is what we're doing. And that is the competitive advantage.
There's companies that I've worked for in uh, back in the in the day where the whole industry is short term focused. Uh, I think about when I worked in in a publishing house, and I was at the publishing house for probably just over a year, and there was a cycle within London publishing houses of people coming back. So I was there so long that I saw people who'd gone round to the jobs at all the other publishing houses and came back while I was still uh, still there. How do you change that attitude? Do you just you have to decide as a as a small company in that industry you're going to buck the trend and you're going to prove the model wrong? Well, you know, a lot of it comes down in the end to cash flow, right? Uh, if you if you can stay alive long enough for your bet to pan out, then you're you're going to be in clover. Uh, Amazon once Amazon Web Services started kicking in people's jaws dropped. They said, oh my God, they are minting money. All of a sudden it made sense what the play was. Oh, now we get it. And But it, it did not happen overnight. You know, Amazon Web Services starts as this kind of random little initiative and, you know, slowly, slowly it begins to grow and then it becomes industry dominant and they, they finally report the numbers and people are stunned. So, if you are, you know, I mean, a couple of things have to happen, right? Number one, uh, you have to be betting on the right things. So, you know, clearly you can't, you can't be just doing whatever. You have to be making smart bets. But if you are, you just need to survive long enough for them to pay off. This is not always easy. You may run out of cash. You may not have a good flow. Um, but if you do, whether you're privately financed or, or you have, uh, as is the case with, with Amazon, you know, Jeff Bezos literally tried to scare off anyone who is not a patient investor. It was like, you know, this is the wrong place for you. But uh, if, you, if you can attract people who are patient investors and they're willing to buy their time with you, then at a certain point, you are able to dramatically outpace the competition because you have made the strategic investments that they have not. And, and I'm taking from that that this same principle can apply to running a business. Can you stay the course um, until everything uh, falls into place to being in a sales role? You know, can you keep your job and keep paid until you can can start bringing the results in? So we focus very much on, on sales and, and leading a business uh, through into this change. Where else have you seen this play out? I mean, one one place that jumps to mind is how does this uh, short game versus long game play out in terms of recruitment policies? Sure. Well, you know, ultimately when it comes to recruitment, I, I'll, I'll give you a metaphor first and then we'll home in. Um, if you want to, for instance, uh, grow your email list, what's the fastest way to grow your email list? Well, the fastest way is to give people stuff. <laughs> so, for instance, uh, something that, that people try sometimes is, oh, you know, sign up here and you can get a raffle for a free iPhone or something like that. Like, it's, it's very easy to get people to give you their email address if, if they are going to, you know, win a free iPhone. But unless your mailing list is is actually about you know oh you like iPhones here's how to you know optimize the use of your iPhone uh, it, it's not going to stick because if you're trying to build a mailing list about you know whatever about leadership or about sales or whatever the people who just want a free iPhone 
that they don't care. They're going to unsubscribe the minute they find out they either do or don't win the iPhone. So it's it's just not effective. The fastest way is not uh, the effective way. And so similarly for recruiting, I mean, what what makes a company able to recruit successfully? Well, in the short term is, you know, give them a bonus or, you know, give them stuff uh, that'll that'll get some people in the door. But ultimately, what what makes them stick, what makes them a good hire is finding a way to match people whose values, whose whose work ethic, whose philosophy is a fit for your company and will will thrive at your company and will serve your customers well. How do you do that? Well, that's that's a slower process because it means building up the brand and reputation of your company such that your ideal target market is familiar with it and seeks it out and wants to work there. And uh, you know, I mean, you think about things like, you know, Patagonia or REI or something. If you are somebody that's interested in the environment, uh, that would be a very logical place for you to aspire to work for. You're, you're going to send in your resume if you want a job that reflects your values. Um, they don't have to work at it anymore because the, the people are already coming to them. And, uh, and that is something that, that takes time through continued demonstration of your values over time, through uh, charitable endeavors, through content creation that speaks to the values of your ideal customer and your ideal employee, etc. So if you're working with someone and they want to change their approach, their organization's approach, and they want to look at the different areas in which uh, they can start thinking long term, We've talked about sales, we've talked about recruitment, we've talked about the overall business strategy. What are the key things that they can do? Where are they going to see easy changes, easy wins? And and I guess that's short-term thinking straight away. But let's start with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. What's the what's the the easy way to do the long term? There you go. Human nature. I'm I'm just as guilty. But you know, we, we people want to see quick results. I guess that's the short game. Um, but if you can prove that, then you can sell the longer term plan as well. I'm right, digging a deeper right. hole here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think part of it is um, is actually doing an analysis of your of your procedures because many times people just literally haven't even asked the question. Like this is this is not on the radar, right? And so I think doing essentially an audit of a given process, like let's take for example the recruitment process and you know mapping it out like okay, here's our steps, here's what we do, here's how we do it. And for each of those actually looking at it and saying well, are we optimizing for the short term or the long term here? Like what, you know, if, if you had to pick, like, where does this fall? And so, for instance, what I would consider to be uh, something optimized for the short term is getting uh, getting as many candidates in the door as possible, even whether they're right or not. So, I mean, you know, an example uh, to take it to the personal realm if you want to write a personal ad that, you know, oh, it's going to fit lots of people, you know, Andy says, oh, well, you know, I like walks on the beach and I like music and I like travel and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, great. Well, now Andy can match with, you know, everyone in the world. That's fantastic. Um, it might get you volume, but it's probably not going to get you the right person because there's going to be a lot of chaff amidst that wheat. And if you actually want the right people, you probably want to be more specific. You want to say, you know what? I like travel, but I hate camping. 
I only like cities or, you know, yeah, I like the beach, but I really, uh, I don't like lakes. So don't ever make me go to a lake, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but that's the way that you are far more likely to find the person that is right for you. And it's the same thing for, uh, for companies. You know, I, I think about, uh, you know, like Zappos, you know, very famously has uh, has sort of take, taken this to eleven, uh, so to speak. But you know, they they are optimizing for for weird. That's what they want. You know, that's their professed value, which you know is probably not right for most companies. But in their case, they're like, no, if you if you do not self identify as weird, this is the wrong place for you. And I think that is fantastic because you have to have that level of, as you say, bizarre specificity. Mm. Uh, and it, it real that actually really helps with the long term. Doesn't help with a big pipeline, but it helps with the right pipeline. I think this is a really important point, and we're back to this visual metaphor of the the, the portrait versus the crowd scene, aren't we? Uh, and a constant argument in 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 my profession is: Do you go for any work you can, so you become a generalist expert, uh, or do you niche or niche, as, as you would put it? Uh, and uh, following that niche is is very scary for a lot of people. But I know uh, speakers and authors who have built very successful businesses on the back of specialising. I'm going to avoid the word niche now, um, but on the back of, uh, on the back of specialising in a, 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 a very, very specific uh, area. And I guess as a business, you can do that in a range of different ways. Who do we target? What do we deliver? Who do we recruit? What are our values? How do we work? How do we operate? You know, we only operate by, you know, we're a, we, we, we provide food only on takeout, only on delivery or or only on Mondays or whatever it might be. Um, that takes long term thinking, doesn't it? Because you can't expect to grow a business quickly that way, but you can grow a very strong presence in the market that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I mean, ultimately, long term thinking is about strategy. I, I, I almost use them interchangeably. Uh, I suppose, you know, you could, you could quibble and say that they're slightly different, but ultimately it's about, it's about deciding what you want and then pursuing that and prioritizing that. That's the essence of strategy. And strategy is about making choices. Uh, in the long game, I actually write about uh, what I think is, is some great research by Francis Fry and Ann Morris uh, coming out of their book, Uncommon Service. And they say, and I love this, that this, the secret to excellence, the secret to true you know, brand success is deciding what to be bad at. And I, I love that so much because of course, everybody and their brother wants to decide what to be good at. Oh yeah, we're gonna be great at this. We're gonna be great at that. Well, guess what? You can't be great at everything. And you also, frankly, can't be great at this, but then just average at everything else. That's not how it works. We have finite energy. If you're gonna be great at something, you have to be bad at something. Make the choice. And most people are not willing to do it. And when you talk about um, deciding what to be bad at. Are you now going into the realms of the Tim Ferriss stuff and so forth about just get rid of it, outsource it, find someone else who's going to do that for you? It, it could be that, uh, you know, at a, at a corporate level, for instance. So Anne and Francis's book talks about corporate decision making. And, you know, one great example is there was a bank that they profiled and this bank uh, decided, yay, right, that they wanted to have uh, longer hours. They wanted to stay open late on weeknights. They wanted to be open on the weekends. Well, fantastic. Of course, their customers loved it. Why doesn't every bank 
do it? Well, obviously it costs money, right? And banks don't want to do it. So the question then becomes, where does the money come from? So this bank decided that the way they would pay for it is that they would give you truly crappy interest rates mm -hmm. on your deposits. Now, if you ask the customer, well, would you like to have really terrible you know, interest rates? They're, you know, they're going to say no. But when push came to shove, they didn't really care that much about the deposit rates. Eh, whatever. They, they hardly noticed. What they noticed is that at 7 o'clock on a Thursday night, they could do banking when they needed to do banking. And so the bank made that strategic choice. And to their, you know, for some customers, it's a big deal. To their customers, it was not a big deal. And so for all of us, you know, we just have to kind of give, give up the ghost about certain things. We have to be willing to make the call. I mean, I'll give you one example in my personal life. For years, for probably a decade, I was extremely involved civically. I mean, I would spend 10 plus hours a week, you know, doing committees and volunteer things and things like that. It's a great thing to do. You know, nobody's going to say, oh, what a terrible thing to be civically involved. But at a certain point, I realized this is holding back my business. I need to reallocate this time into my business if I'm really serious about yeah. having it grow. And so now I am involved in like, you know, very, very few civic activities uh, other than raising cats. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I, I will come back to it, right? You know, this is why people do charitable things when they're retired. Um, but during the time when you're supposed to be growing your business, you need to grow your business. So uh, I made that allocation about what to be bad at. Uh, and, and I've been through the same thing, you know. I've I've stepped down from voluntary board roles and so forth for exactly the same reason. For people listening on the podcast, I have to just explain that your cat walked straight across the screen there, um, <laughs> and, and we just had white fur everywhere for, for a it was it was a way out. Yes, <laughs> yeah. We, uh, Richard Balsam on LinkedIn has said that he's guilty as charged on short term gain. Richard, I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you. You may not want to accept this, but give us an example. You know, how have you? Um, how have you followed a decision for short-term gain um, when you really should have played the long game? And, and please share that. If we've got a chance, we'll share it on the on the podcast as well. Or you may not want me to. I will take that decision, but it's on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and Susie's come in and said she loves that We're talking about niche versus generalist and, and the, the generalist specialist and, and so forth. When you were talking about being bad at something, I think the textbook example certainly in the UK and Europe, and I, I, I from from watching the, the the John Oliver and the Daily Show and Bill Maher, I, I'm pretty sure uh, you've got your examples in the States as well of this, is the low-cost uh, airlines and, and how they've transformed the airline industry. Is it Southwestern that sort of fits in that that um, package, if I, if I remember rightly? Um, but, you know, EasyJet and Ryanair came in in, in UK serving Europe and Ireland, um, and since then, Wizz Air and others, you pay for your food and drink. And now everyone's doing it in economy. You you know, the business is what we used to enjoy as economy in these flights. Um, but they've said, you know, you're not going to get wonderful customer service. You're, you're going to pay for your food and drink. You're going to be shuttled on at the last minute and shuttled off quickly. You won't have anywhere in front of your seat to put things because we want to clean that airplane quickly so we can get a quick turnaround so we can run more flights a day so your flights can be cheaper. That's a, I think, textbook example, isn't it, of being bad at something deliberately. Absolutely, yes. And, and deliberate is the key 
because if you were if you were not deliberately bad at it and they were just trying to be average but you're like oh my god you know <laughs> these people suck then no one would no one would like it no one would embrace it but instead uh Ryanair and EasyJet actually have lots of fans they they have lots of people that say you know what I don't care I don't care if I have to buy my food. I want to, you know, go to Mallorca for 30 pounds. And that's, you know, that works for me. Absolutely. Um, right. So I have one more question for you. And I think it's a common becoming a common theme now for obvious reasons in, in these these podcasts. But you're talking about something that has has been around, not not ironically, for a long time. Um, you know, this this focus on short term gain over over um, long term growth has been, I think, a challenge. Well, I talked about leaving corporate life 20 plus years ago because of it. Um, so it's been around for a long time. We've seen a lot of changes in the last 18 months because of COVID and, and the impact on business and the way we live and the way we work. How do you think this has or will impacted uh, on the way we think about short versus the long term and, and people's uh, willingness to listen to, to the message of the book? Yeah, certainly COVID threw a wrench in things. Uh, in fact, one, one of the things that I recount early in the book is that I, I sold the book Re really just as COVID was, was hitting. I got mm. the acceptance on uh, February 28th of 2020. And uh, literally the next day, March 1st, was the day that the first COVID case was reported in New York. <laughs> so it was, it was just coming down. So a couple of weeks into having uh, this book contract, I, I ran into a guy and I was saying, oh, you know, I have this new book that I'm working on. And he says, what's it about? And I said, long-term thinking. And he just, he just like laughed. He's like, ah, well, you know, nobody needs that anymore. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. But in all honesty, COVID, of course, was a time when of necessity we had to be reactive. That was the nature of it, right? You just, you have to adapt. You have to, um, you know, everything gets blown up. Okay. You can't really plan. Nobody knows. Now that we are, God willing, coming out of it, um, at a minimum, I think we're mentally coming out of it because, you know, 18, 18 months of this nonsense, we're, we're done. Uh, hopefully, we're coming out of it in terms of uh, getting to a more vaccinated and controlled future. But I, I think people are ready to take back the reins, you know? It's it's not it's while it is good to be adaptable and be able to react when you need to. That's no way to live. That's you know you you are, you're like a jellyfish on the waves. Just oh, I'll kind of go some places. You know, we don't want to live our lives like jellyfish. We want to be steering the ship. And so I think that there is a place. There's an important place for long term thinking. And of course you have to be nimble. Of course you have to adapt to, to circumstances. But it doesn't mean you can't plan and set an intention for where you want to go. And I think this goes back to a, a, a number of the things that you were saying earlier about working around values uh, and, you know, really understanding what you want to achieve. Because I know people who have totally reevaluated what they want to do. We've, you know, I, I know people that have moved out of London and its immediate surrounds because they want a better quality of life. And they want to work from home. And if, here comes your cat again. Uh, but if they um, if they want to, you know, if they, their, their current job accommodates that grade, if it doesn't, they'll find something else because they've discovered something more important. Uh, we here, I think I've heard it both sides at the Atlantic. Um, the bar staff are not going back and restaurant staff because they've found other things that so serve them better longer term. 
Um, so hopefully that's had an impact as well. Richard has come back and and um, and actually it follows the same theme because he said he took a short term temp role when he was looking for work, which cut into looking for a permanent role for his ideal sector. And it meant he missed networking opportunities to make connections. So I think that's a really um, great example of being driven by short term thinking scarcity driven i guess as well if you're looking for a job uh and, and it, it actually affects your 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 potential in the longer term dory thank you so much uh i i as i said at the very beginning um this is an important topic it's something that cuts very deeply into the work that i do and I see it time and again, and it frustrates me because I'm teaching people to think long term in their relationship building. And they're saying, yes, but uh, and it's not coming from them. It's coming from from elsewhere. And, and we do need um, we do need to change our thinking on this. So I'm looking forward to the book. Uh, thank you for sharing your your thoughts and wisdom on this. I look forward to seeing the book and uh, you're joining us for our Thursday podcast, which will be a very special one. Um, so you're going to stay on the line. So if you're watching live, uh, do stay with us. But in the meantime, Dory, thank you very much for joining me. Andy, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I'll just mention quickly that if folks are interested in this topic of long-term thinking, I have a free resource. It's a uh, strategic thinking self-assessment, and folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Thank you so much to Dory for joining me, and I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. I highly recommend her new book. It comes out on the 21st of September. I've had a preview of it and it's well worth the read. You can probably pre-order it now, I would imagine, if you want to go online or just go to the show notes and click on that link that Dory gave us at the end of the chat. Thank you for joining me over the last few weeks on this trip down Connected Leadership Podcast Memory Lane. We're back with a brand new episode next week and I'm going to be joined by John Cohen. John's organisation was one of the laboratories at the spearhead of the US federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic. They led a lot of the national testing uh, when it first came out. So it's a fascinating conversation where we look at how you get a team to adapt to such a high level of uncertainty, such a high level of not knowing what comes next, dealing with both private and federal public sector uh, demands, dealing with all the different people involved with that and keeping people motivated when they're working 24 hours a day. So I think we're back with a bang. Come and join us next week for another edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.